0: This morning, I'm going to uh, give you a commercial, another commercial for the Financial Peace University. Um, we've got these cards available. These are business size cards, and again, it's blank on the back, so you can put a personal note, um, but I've got, I've got 500 of these right now. Um, I would like for you to take as many as you'd like. And I want to encourage you to give them out in drive-thrus, to give them out in grocery stores, to give them out at the cleaners, at the doctors. Give them out wherever you go. It's got the church web address, and it's super easy. If you or someone you know or someone you run into, if they want to sign up for this class, all they have to do is go to our website. And on the front page of the website, you can click on the picture, and it'll take you to the link to this guy's website. And our information is there. You just simply order your own material. It gets shipped to your house, I believe, for free. And the cost is not $99, now it's $93. So you're welcome for that. Um, I'm footing the extra seven for everybody. Not really. It's on sale. But anyway, StokeslandBaptistChurch.com. These will be available at the back, at the end of the service. And again, this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I've got a little commercial for you to play uh, to hopefully encourage it. Because this guy is like, um, he's a ball of energy. And so if we can play this. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Are you really going to make the hard choices to change your life? We had 40,000 in student loans, uh-huh. 17,000 in cars. I owned a rental property and had a line of credit, just stuff. We had 16 credit cards. The proverb says Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes. We paid off $83,000. Wow! When desire comes. $144,000. When desire comes. $450,000 in the last seven years. Wow! It is the tree of life. God says this is how you get out of debt. You gotta run, 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 run! There is no doubt that this process called Financial Peace University works. The only question is whether you're going to be involved. And so if you haven't signed up yet, now is the time. And I'll echo that. Now is the time. Uh, We live in a debt-laden society. Uh, There are people that are drowning in debt. There are people that are living from paycheck to paycheck. I think I saw a statistic that said 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and, and that sounds a little bit low to me. But um, if you know of anybody uh, that could use this help, please, by all means, give that card to them. And by the way, you don't have to be in debt up to your eyeballs to take this class. You, don't, you can have all your financial picture together. Uh, this might help you in other ways. And so let me encourage you. Uh, financial Peace University, very, very important. Take advantage of it, and, uh, and let's see what God might do. All right, Christmas is two weeks from today. Can you all believe that? We are two weeks away. Now, in two weeks, we will have a Christmas service, but we won't have Sunday school. Um, But uh, plan on being here, bring family, bring friends, and uh, we're going to have a good time that Sunday. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bible. And I want to tell you about the person that I most identify with in the Christmas story. Okay? And it's not Mary, obviously, because I'm not a chick, right? Mary was a girl. If you were wondering, I am not a girl. I use the men's restroom like all men should. I don't use the ladies' room. Um, Well, anyway, it's not Joseph, right? It's not Joseph. It's uh, it's not the innkeeper. It's not the wise men. It's not the shepherds. It's not even baby Jesus, the one I identify with the most, if I'm being honest. The person that I identify with most is probably the, the villain of the story, and that's King Herod. You know, we've all got a little bit of King Herod in us. And I'm going to tell you why in just a, a few minutes. But I've kind of nicknamed King Herod for the day. He's the brass ring king. Do y'all remember the the phrase, chasing the brass ring? Y'all know that phrase? Y'all familiar with it? And you know what it means? It means pursuing wealth, pursuing influence, pursuing power, pursuing position, pursuing your agenda to make yourself something in life. And if you were to look at uh, at Herod's life, which was what we're going to do today, if you were to look at his life, he is the epitome of the brass ring king. That his entire life was centered around pursuing his own agenda. So I think we've all got a little bit of Herod in us, don't you? If we're honest. And we have to fight that little bit of Herod on a, on a daily basis. If you're me, it's a daily basis. That you've got to kind of push that, that tendency to strive and the tendency to acquire and maintain and protect and preserve and control and all that stuff that, that epitomized Herod's life. Well, let me give you a little bit of history about Herod. Herod was the puppet king of Judea. That The Roman Empire had set him up as the king, and he wasn't a Jew. And so because he wasn't a Jew, the Jews went crazy, and the Jews did not like him at all. And he was ruling at the time, as you know, when Jesus was born. Now, Herod was not a dummy. Herod was not, um, he was not a, a newbie. He wasn't naive in a political sense. He was very politically astute. He was very politically savvy. He was very ambitious. Herod was also known as a builder. Herod would build these aqueducts in that region, and it would move water into places that needed water. And, and he built some magnificent structures. He built seaport cities that we know of today. He even built the temple, and he built it with glory and splendor and, and all the beauty that you can imagine of a building. But, in the end, it's his ambition. That got him in trouble. In in the end, it was that brass ring thinking that got him in trouble in the end. And so let me give you a real quick history lesson. Has everyone heard of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar was killed in the Roman Senate by his friend Brutus, among others, in 44 B.C. Well, obviously there were people who were allies of Caesar and friends of Caesar and family of Caesar that didn't really take too kindly to that happening. One of them's name was Octavius. Octavius and a friend named Mark Antony decided that they were going to avenge Caesar's death. And so they began going around and searching for and destroying everyone that was associated with Caesar's death. And so if, they would fi- if you were involved in Caesar's death, they would find you and you would be killed. Well, as time went by, everybody in the Roman Empire realized and they understood that eventually what's going to happen is Octavius and Mark Antony are going to go head-to-head with each other because they're both becoming very powerful men. They each had allegiance of certain numbers of the Roman legion. While all of this is going on, King Herod decides to befriend one of them. He befriends Mark Antony. Now Mark Antony... Um, was married to a woman named Cleopatra of Egypt. And we know that story, right? Cleopatra of Egypt. But she wasn't really well liked by the people of Rome. And so they hated her. They thought she was going to try to take over Rome and and merge them with Egypt. And and so the Roman people hated her. Well, Herod befriended her and Mark Antony. He would have parties. He would host parties and they would come down. and, And they would be lavish parties. He would give them very expensive gifts there was a rebellion that took place outside the city of Alexandria, Egypt, that Mark Antony and Cleopatra led, and so Herod naturally supported that. And so over time, Herod and Cleopatra and Mark Antony became very close. Well, in time, the thing that everybody in Rome feared would happen actually happened. That one day, Octavius and uh, and Mark Antony, they squared off And there was a civil war in the Roman Empire. It didn't last too long because Octavius pretty much right away defeated Mark Antony. In fact, Mark Antony and Cleopatra ended up cutting their losses and heading back to Alexandria, Egypt. Well, do you remember who Herod backed? (laughs) He backed the wrong horse. He put his money on the wrong person. And Octavius would become Caesar Augustus. Does that name sound familiar? Caesar Augustus, who issued the, the decree that everyone should be taxed in the world, and Herod has sided with his enemy against him, and Herod lost the, the allegiance there. Now, in the ancient world, you have one of three options if you're Herod. You can either kill yourself and get it over with, because that's coming down the pipe right at you. You can run, but what's the saying? You can run, but you can't hide. The Roman Empire would find you, and they would eventually kill you. Or you could kind of hunker down, lay low, and hope they forgot about you, but they don't forget about people. And so as Herod is weighing out his options, he's smart enough, he's politically savvy enough, he's ambitious enough to create a fourth option. And his fourth option was this. He had heard that the emperor was on an island. And so Herod gets on a ship, and instead of heading away from the emperor, he heads right straight toward the emperor. And he goes to the island where the emperor is. He knocks on the door. And he tells him he wants to see Octavius, Caesar Augustus. Now, everybody around him, everybody in that particular place, looked at Herod like he was crazy because he was an enemy of the state. He was the one that they would be searching for. And they were going to end up killing him. That's what everybody thought. And so he showed up. And he makes the speech of his life after he's invited in. And basically, what he says is this Oh, great emperor, you know that I was a friend of your enemy, Mark Antony. And in fact, I was a loyal supporter of him from the start. I backed him. I was with him in the beginning. I was with him in the middle. And I was with him in the end. And you know by that king that I'm a very loyal person. And whoever I pledge my loyalty to, king, that person will continue to have my loyalty no matter what. I'll be faithful to the end. And oh, great Caesar, you have my loyalty. A very smart move if it works out. Well, Caesar was very impressed. Caesar was taken aback, and instead of killing Herod, instead of taking Judea from him, what he does, Caesar says, okay, you can not only have Judea, but you can also have... You can have Samaria, you can have Jericho, you can have Gaza. He, he expanded his influence, he expanded his power. Now that's a perfect picture of Herod's savvy and his ambition. But the thing that got him in trouble was his desire to control and to preserve and to protect his legacy. That's exactly what got him in trouble. In fact, he, he made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Now, how many of you have a will? How many of you have a will? Who has a will? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you have a will. That's, that's good. Now, how many times do you change your will? Not very often. Well, Herod was the kind of person that changed his will numerous times. See, Herod had 10 wives and a bunch of sons. And, and as time would go on, he would pick one of his sons to, to assume the power after Herod was gone. Well, that son would do something that Herod didn't like. He would cross him, and so Herod would have him killed and then change his will, picking another son. Well, after a few times of that, you can imagine the sons were probably wanting to be as far away from dad as possible, That they didn't want any part of being king. And so he changed his will several times. He had one of his wives killed, all so he could preserve his way of ruling Judea. He had so many rabbis killed that none of the rabbis actually wanted to go to Jerusalem. Because if you gave Herod bad news, if you made him mad, then he would do whatever he wanted to do to control his legacy. Now that brings us to the point where we are in the story of the birth of Christ. When Jesus was born, Herod was about 70 years old. And Herod had this painful kidney disease. He's very sick, and he's in the midst of trying to preserve his legacy and control what's going to happen after his death. And he receives the most disturbing news a king could possibly receive. That five miles south of where Herod was, there was a king that had just been born. And here's how Matthew introduces the story in Matthew chapter 2. Here's what he says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked. Now, imagine this. This is the Magi coming into Jerusalem. This is like when you get lost, and you have to ask for directions, and you stop everywhere you come to. You know that feeling? You ever not know where you're going before GPS came along? And so they stop, and they begin asking for directions. And they're wandering around Jerusalem, and notice what they ask. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They're not looking for Herod. They're not looking for any of his family. They say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, what's that next part? He was disturbed. And not only was he disturbed, but look at that last part, and all Jerusalem with him. Can you now understand why all of Jerusalem would be disturbed if King Herod is disturbed? Because when King Herod was disturbed, he would do anything. When King Herod was disturbed, he was a very dangerous person. And now he's older, and now he's facing a life-threatening disease. He sees the end of his life right in front of him, and he's, he's trying to hold on as much as he can. He sees his kingdom at risk. Look at verse 4. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, now that probably wasn't a good time to be called, was it? <laughs> when you get called to the palace, you don't know what's going to happen. You might not come back. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, verse 5, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The worst news imaginable has just been delivered. So verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after, that, the king, after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down. And what did they do? They worshiped him. Now, in modern church terms, when we think of worship, what do we think of? We think of music. Music is absolutely part of worship, but music is not all that there is to worship. Worship is simply the recognition that you're in the presence of someone who should cause you to have awe. That's all that worship is. And that this recognition should cause you to do whatever you need to do, physically or mentally, to surrender yourself before them and to them. So here are these wealthy kings. They're with this child who would be king. A child who has no actual physical power. He can't hurt them at all. But because they believe in faith that he is who they believe him to be, they bow their knees and they worship. And a mere five miles away, Herod is worried to death. You've got the Magi over Jordan. You've got Herod worried to death. And you know why he's worried? Because he's about to lose everything he's worked for. He's about to lose everything he's lived for. He's about to lose everything he's built his life around. And I imagine it's with clenched fists that Herod, in tremendous pain, says, I'm not about to worship anyone. See, that's why I think we have a little bit of Herod in all of us. You know, we don't mind using God, do we? If I I pray just right, if I do this, if I do this, then then God's going to do something for me. I don't mind invoking God to build my kingdom. I don't mind reading my Bible from time to time to kind of appease him. I don't mind saying a quick prayer if I'm in trouble. I don't mind saying a quick prayer if I need something. I don't mind doing that if it means furthering my agenda. But this whole idea of giving God a blank check for my life, uh, I'm not so sure about that. This whole idea of looking to God and saying, God, the answer is yes. Now you ask me what the question is. That whole idea of total surrender doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come naturally to you. But there's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Look at verse 12. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt. In verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, what's that last part? He was furious. He was angry. And when Herod was furious, when Herod was angry, people got hurt. And when Herod was angry, people died. Again, he's spending his whole life determining and controlling outcomes. And he was good at it. Think about this. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was inapt. He was good at it. He, put, he bet on the wrong side in the Civil War and he came out with an even sweeter deal than when he went in with. He's a very, he's, he's masterful at controlling the outcome. But now he gets to this stage of his life. He's been outwitted by, by wise men. He's been outwitted by, by peasant parents. He's been outwitted by a little baby. And he's angry. And he decided there will be no one and there will be no thing that comes in between me and my legacy. His desire was to see someone from his line sit on the throne of Judea forever and ever and ever. And so he wouldn't go down quietly. Look at the next part. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. In other words, he says, okay, if you won't bring him to me, I will go and I will find him and I'll kill him. And so he didn't know who it was. And so one horrible day, his soldiers ride into Bethlehem. And his soldiers begin going from house to house to house to house. They go in every single house, every single hut. They go into every farm in that area, and they murder every little boy that appears to be two years old or under. That's an incredibly vicious man. Herod was an evil, evil person. Now think about this. Mary lived with that. You ever thought about that? That Mary knew that they were gonna come and try to kill her son, and so she was told to escape with her family, but there were other loved ones and other close friends of hers who lost kids. That family members who would dare stand in the way of, of Herod's army were killed themselves. It's an incredible, incredibly painful time. Well, pretty soon in that same year, Herod died a very painful death. Now, he had tried to kill himself. Killing yourself was not really easy back then. And when you killed yourself back then, you inflicted a lot of pain on yourself. And so for Herod to inflict more pain on him, he must have been in some serious pain. But when he was trying to kill himself, his cousin walked in and his cousin saved him. And so he continued to suffer. In the days before his death, Herod ordered that all the wealthy and influential men in the city be rounded up and be put in jail. And his orders were, that in the hour that I die, I want you to put all of these men to death because at least there will be somebody that's mourning on that day. It's an incredible, incredible story. See, King Herod knew. He knew that on the day that he died, there would be a party to beat all parties in Jerusalem, that people would celebrate, people would have parties in the streets. And so when Herod died, they did not follow his orders, thankfully that they released all of the men. Verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And in a little twist in history, Herod, the man who tried to control his legacy, Herod, the man who tried to build his kingdom and, and live for his agenda, becomes a footnote in history. And if you were to go to Herod the last days of his life, can you imagine trying to explain how it would turn out for him? That, hey, Herod, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is is that 2,000 years from now, there will be people who will be talking about you. Now, Herod would probably think that was a good thing. Well, that's the, the good news. But the bad news is you're a footnote. The bad news is that in all of these places, in all these languages that you've never heard of, you're just going to be a footnote in history. And the actual star of history will be that baby that you tried to have killed, who would become the savior, the king of the world. And by the way, Herod, people are not going to talk about all the great things that you built. They're not going to talk about the aqueducts. How many of you knew that Herod built aqueducts? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, some history students, maybe. But most of us, we, we don't know that Herod built aqueducts, do we? Did you know that Herod had built seaports, sea seaside cities? Did y'all know that? Some of, some of us did, it's, but it's a, it's a small number of us. Did you know that Herod had built the temple? Now, a few more of us might know that. But can you imagine being Herod in your final days and hearing that, that you're not going to be remembered for what you built? In fact, you're not going to be remembered as Herod the Builder. You're going to be remembered as Herod the Butcher. That's what people are going to talk about. And the sad thing of all of it is that you were five miles away. You were five miles away and and you missed your opportunity. Well, 80 years later... Eighty years later, Jesus has grown up and Jesus has done his ministry. Jesus has gone to the cross for your sins and my sins. Jesus has come out of the grave. Jesus has ascended to his father. Eighty years later, there's a guy named John who takes a step back and he begins to think about all that he's seen. He's begin, he begins to think about all that he's he's experienced. Nero's gone, Herod's gone, Caesar Augustus is gone all the splendor of the temple that Herod had built, all that stuff is gone. And here you have this apostle named John who had heard the birth narrative probably over and over and over because he took care of Mary the mother. John that had seen Jesus walk on water. John who had seen Jesus die on the cross. John who had seen Jesus, the empty tomb. He appeared into the empty tomb. He had breakfast with the risen Savior. John, 80 years later, takes a step back. And he summarizes the experience in John 1, 4 through 5. He says, in him, in in this baby that was born in Bethlehem, in this baby that Herod tried to execute, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. He said, at first we thought it was for the Jews, but we realized we're wrong. At first we thought it was just for us, but you know what? He wasn't just for us. He was for everyone. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't, doesn't matter where you're born. He is for all mankind. And then in the next verse, he moves from using the past tense to the present tense. And I love this. He moves from what he experienced to the truth of what Jesus is for you and for me today. Look at verse 5. He says, the light shines. The light shines right now. We would say the light shines right now in Danville, Virginia. The light shines right now in the darkness. And I want you to think about the man that is writing this. And we went over this a little bit last week. But John is the man that's been exiled to Patmos. John is the man that for all intents and purposes, it looks like the Romans have won. He's lost all of his friends. He's lost his family. He's lost everything that's dear to him. Yet he looks back on his life and he looks back at Jesus' life. And he says that light continues to shine brightly in the darkness. And notice what he says next. And he says the darkness, what's that last part? Has not overcome it. The darkness has not blown it out. The darkness has not overwhelmed it. The darkness has not overcome it. So that brings me to a question for you guys and for me. What is my relationship to that light? What is your relationship to that light? What will your story be in relation to the light? Will it be a story of Herod, the brass ring king, a story of resistance, where when you had opportunity to embrace the light, when you had opportunity to receive the light, you resisted? Or will it be a story like the wise men? And will it be a story of, of worship? Will it be a story of Herod where you tried, to, you tried to build your own kingdom? You pursued your own means. You pursued your own ends. You pursued your own desires. You pursued, you pursued wealth. You pursued, you pursued power and influence. You pursued what you wanted above what God wanted. And, and you didn't accept the invitation to God's kingdom. Will your story be that you held on to the things of this life and the things that you've built up even though you're going to have to give them up anyway? Or will your story be that you are one that gave everything that came your way? You gave it to God because it wasn't yours to begin with. The big question is, will your story be about your way or God's way? That's what it comes down to. Will it be your will or will it be God's will. Now let's be honest. This is a struggle for all of us. I'm a professional Christian and it's a struggle for me on a regular basis. Is, is today going to be about me or is it going to be about God? Because I do have a little heritage in me. I, I do want a legacy. I do want things to be true of me. I do want certain things and, and, and sometimes those things are not what God wants. But the truth is one day, Someone is going to tell your story in relation to your relation to the light. And I've been to a lot of funerals, and you've been to a lot of funerals, and I'm sure you've been to funerals where when the preacher is talking about the person that's before you, that you want to go up there to make sure it's the same person in the casket that he's talking about. You've been to those funerals? The preacher's got to make something up to make it sound like this person lived a noble, honorable life. Do you want somebody to have to make something up? Or do you want your story that they can tell to be the true story, that at some point in your life, you arrived at the, at the, at the point in your life where, where you made a decision, where you were faced with the decision, will it be about Jesus or will it be about me? That Jesus as Savior is great. And that Jesus as Lord is, is great. Have you reached that point in your life? Because someday your story will be told. The question is, what is that story going to be? Now, you may be here and you may have drifted. You may have drifted a little bit. I mean, you know Jesus as your Savior. You can point back to a, a date and a time and a place and a person. And you can point back to that and you can say, I know Jesus is my Savior, but I've just kind of drifted. That the circumstances surrounding my life have kind of suppressed my desire for God. That the circumstances surrounding my life have kind of suppressed my love for God. But the strangest thing happens on a regular basis. There's something inside of me that kind of prods me back in the direction of God. That there is something within me that says, you know what you need? You need You need to spend time with God. You need more of God in your life. Can I tell you what I think that is? I think that's the light of God in your life. I think that's the Holy Spirit in your life prodding you back to God. And the good news, as John puts it, is that is a light that the darkness has never overcome and will never, ever overcome. See, the Magi got it right. The Magi, when they came, they actually got it right. Because when you're in the presence of holiness, and when you're in the presence of righteousness, and when you're in the presence of truth and grace and love, what's the one thing that you can do? It's worship. That's the one thing that we can do. See, in the next few minutes, we're going to just take a few minutes and we're going to worship. And we're going to worship through song as an expression. But I want you to just take the next few minutes, and I just want you to think and, and, and ponder about what God has said to you today. It could be that you have kind of drifted, that you've kind of wandered, and you, you look at where your life is headed, and you're like, you know what? I don't want to live that Herod life. I don't want to live that life where everything is about me, and at the end, it's all meaningless. I want to live a life of purpose, I want to live a life of surrender. I'm thankful that my Savior loves me and and died for me. Maybe you're actually running from God, not on the outside, but you're running from God on the inside. But you've experienced some hurts in your life. You've experienced some things that have caused you to doubt, and you've kind of pushed back against this light. But there is that light that continually shines in your heart, and you know what's right, and you know what you need, and you know what you should do. And maybe your response today is, is simply, It's to surrender. And it doesn't mean that, you know, what you surrender and and tomorrow you buy a plane ticket to go to Africa to be a missionary. That's not what surrender means necessarily. Maybe it is for you. I I don't know. But maybe the step back and maybe the step of surrender and maybe the step to re-engage with God for you, maybe it's just simply a a short prayer. To where you say, God, I haven't talked to you in a while. but, But I don't want to end up like Herod. I don't want that to be the story that he was five miles away and he missed the opportunity and, and that I was so close and I missed the opportunity for my life to be meaningful. So maybe, maybe the step for your re-engagement is simply saying, God, it's been a while, but, but I, wanna, I want that closeness. I want that relationship with you to be close. Maybe the step of reengagement for you is to open your Bible for the first time in a long time and, and maybe just read a verse. You don't have to read a chapter. You don't have to read a book. Just open your Bible, read a verse, meditate on it, talk to God about it, and say, God, would you you make this true in my life? Would you make this true of me? Maybe it's to make church a priority again. I don't know what God is saying to you about reengaging with him, but can I tell you some good news? That no matter how far you have gone away, no matter how long it's been, no matter what you've done, no matter what what thing that you've committed, when you have that light in you, you know what the good news is? It's always there. And it will always be there. And it's not going to go out. That Jesus doesn't give up on you. That Jesus is the light of the world. And when Jesus stepped from the splendor of heaven, you don't know where he stepped to. He stepped to a very dark world. And our response as believers is to worship, is to surrender. So let me ask you, what is it? What is it in your life? You're like, maybe you're pursuing the brass ring. Maybe, maybe you've got some, there's something in your life. And even though God says, you know what, I don't want you pursuing that. Because you're giving your life to this thing and you're not giving your life to me and maybe God has put his finger on something in your life, and you're going to have a hard time surrendering, would you just trust God? Would you trust God and say, God, it's, it's part of my kingdom, but you know what? I don't want my kingdom. I want your kingdom. And would you take that desire, would you take that from me, and God, I just, I just surrender myself to you this morning. Let's pray.